Welcome to Into the Well. I'm your host, Ryan Wilms. I started this show as a place to share my experiences and my journey towards living authentically and mindfully, and also to learn from those who are truly walking the path, healing themselves and inspiring others. By balancing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we can learn to live in harmony with ourselves and our environment. We'll be exploring different tools and modalities used to create sustainable well-being for a fulfilling life. So thank you for joining me. On this episode, I sit down with Knox Robinson, known online as First Run, the founder of Black Roses. He's a Nike Run Club coach, cultural curator, former editor-in-chief of Fader Magazine. We get a chance to dive into his upbringing and education from Taoism and Buddhism to literature, Black culture, lessons he's learned from his father, parallels in running and life, and a lot of topics. The conversation goes here and there and interweaves in a sort of unique way for the way that my podcasts have gone, but I really enjoy talking to Knox. His wisdom is inspiring, and the questions he asks are also very interesting. The way that he sort of creates this tapestry between running, music, culture, and style is really uh, unique. And the experiences and people he's worked with are inspirational and aspirational. And I definitely look forward to connecting with Knox again. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this long conversation that we had in LA together. Thank you. All right, Knox, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, yeah, I just want to say excited to connect with you. We got to catch up a little bit last week and appreciate you taking the time and yeah, coming over to have a chat today. For sure. It's a rare opportunity. Although we're socially distanced, it's a rare opportunity to kind of have an in-person conversation. So uh, I'm grateful for that opportunity alone. (laughs) Likewise, likewise. Um, so I've been, you know, listening to a couple other podcasts with you and trying to do a little bit of research and I find the more I've sort of learned about your journey, it's been very interesting and varied and, you know, we were just talking about living in interesting times. It seems like that's been a, a theme of your, your life in some ways. So I was wondering just for, for my listeners and, and even for myself, starting with a little bit of context for where you grew up, um, your sort of initial introduction into running is that sort of one of the main, you know, pieces that I found you and, and, uh, through the district vision guys and, and first run and that, and, and then we can kind of go from there. For sure. Yeah. I, um, it's interesting when you think about, we were talking about, uh, this made up Chinese quote, you know, may you live in interesting times. I, I, Growing up, I never thought it was super interesting. Um, and to this day, I, I kind of find my background pretty heteronormative and boring, uh, much to my chagrin. But I grew up around the United States, um, early childhood in Southern California, um, south of here in, in San Diego. Um, and also after that, spent time in uh, Texas, in Houston, Texas, um, and then upstate New York. Um and then I went to to college in North Carolina. So bounced around. And I think that early um, experience of living in a bunch of different places from the United in the United States made me really open to um, just the idea of, of of America, I guess. And and I say that now 
um, beyond these artificial borders that um, politicians past and present insist on, um, you know, demarcating this land. So I guess growing up around the country, um, I got an early appreciation with, you know, different accents and different sensibilities, different cuisines, obviously, and different traditions and ethnicities and and cultures. Um, running kind of came along through that. I saw my dad participate, you know, uh, as a rank and file member of the, the running boom of the late 70s and early 80s. Um, so there was childhood memories and, you know, Super 8 films of going out to races and watching my dad do his thing and, you know, some great blurry photos of him and some really immodest <laughs> short and singlet combos, um, <laughs> Nike waffle racers, um, a manageable Afro. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely saw running through the lens of my dad and his his peers, his cronies, kind of doing, the, doing it as, um, I suppose, a social function but also as an ethic like running i guess running can be fun and running is cool when you do it in groups and all that kind of stuff but even when my dad was doing it i understood still like race day is race day you know what i mean and so even though my dad wasn't at the front of the pack um i realized later it was still it was still kind of a thing it wasn't just for laughs um so i guess my early sensibilities and my aesthetic and my ethic around running comes from from that time. Um, and if my father was the model and the portal into understanding that world, then it stands to reason um, that for me today, running would uh, not only have a vintage cast over it, but also, um, in my eyes, you know, be seen as something that that's practiced by like black and brown people, just because that's what was in the family photos. And that's just what I saw when I would go out to races. So for me, I guess how I try to share running culture today is inextricably linked to what I saw early on as a kid. Mm -hmm. And then what I experienced in my own, you know, running exploits in high school and college and, and then whatever happened after that. Yeah, I'm curious to know, like, as well, growing up, you know, seeing your father and, and his community of runners, and then you sort of go and travel around America, you have your own experience, you know, as a black man in America, but also as a runner. And, you know, how much did your dad and like share his experience with you? Or was it kind of you, you know, peeling back the layers of all these things on your own and sort of realizing the different textures and cultures that make up this like melting pot, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah. That's definitely come later. Once you start hanging out your shingle or you kind of like sift through your own metier as like a creative, if I, if indeed I'm a creative, like, so what am I doing? Or like, what am I thinking about? What am I writing about? Or why am I so crazy? But I, as far as like the lessons handed down to me from my dad early on, <laughs> that I miss, I mistook, the lessons to be about running, but <laughs> they, they, I, I can't really point to them and, or share them with others and say, this is going to help you run a fast marathon. Mm-hmm. You know? So, um, you know, my parents had this book growing up. I, I think runner's world publication runner's world published like amazing seventies style 
um, books. So you and I are both fans of, of Mike Spino's Mm -hmm. book. Um, you know, that was part of like a whole genre, a whole bookshelf of like really simply rendered books about running. So my parents, the one at my house was called running with style. I mean, this was an actual book running with style and the cover as a, as a, as a creative director, you will, if you haven't seen this cover, you're going to lose sleep over it. Because it's just like, you know how uh, Mike Spino's book has two or three versions and you need all the, (laughs) much respect to the district vision printing, but the two or three printings available on a books that now are, you know, out of reach for our Mm -hmm. pocketbooks. The covers are so great, Mm -hmm. but there's the one with the black dude running and the yellow and the black and all that. Running with style is like that. It's like um, a sky blue top half, a burnt orange bottom half, and there's like a black dude running graphically afro. And it's like a real (laughs) wavy kind of presentation with that 70s font running with style. And just to see that book on the bookshelf moving around my house, following us from moving to Houston, you know, up to upstate New York. I just always kind of knew more about that than I knew about Steve Prefontaine and Jim Ryan, you know, Mm -hmm. the black and white photos and like the, the manual of style actually, Mm -hmm. you know, as far as running goes that (laughs) those are my earliest lessons into, to what it was all about. And then only later in life did I really catch up to, lactate threshold and yeah you know all that kind of stuff so it's interesting that even the aesthetic of uh the 70s running boom is very familiar to me and and actually what's cool about the work you and i are both you know obsessed with is going back to those gems and jewels to unpack that you know not only in the incredible lessons and the teaching practices especially from you know mike spino so profound but also mining or investigating and exploring the aesthetic um, of all those books, you know? Um, and there's a wide range. Some were practical. Some were kind of catered to that middle-class materialist acquisitional unlock of like, I must do this, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of persisted through the 80s and kind of gave running that popular stereotype that it had you know, in the eighties and nineties, but the diversity of it, you know, in the seventies was real wild. So Mm -hmm. the Zen and running book is crazy. So many books, like there's just like naked couples running on a beach with like kind of okay, black and white photography. And then, you know, Zen inspired poetry ostensibly about running that would really like curdle the contents of your stomach. Like when you read it, sorry, if the author (laughs) is reading this, but some of the writing is terrible. (laughs) So um, I don't know. That's super discursive. But when you think about, you know, some of these incredible books, I just came across another one. Um, There's a a brother in LA who runs, his name is Rio, Rio Lakeshore. And he was featured in some recent Tracksmith ads. Mm -hmm. Cool brother running or whatever. I'm excited to kind of link up with him now that I'm moving out here and He's sharing his journey, and it's also like you and I, like at the intersection of mindfulness and movement in pursuit of personal excellence or just or just for the investigation. Mm-hmm. But he posted this book the other day called Psycho Blackology. Okay. 
<laughs> Yo. And it was handwritten on the cover. And you know, when when you're when you have like our appetites, you can you already know the hunt is on. So he posted <laughs> it and he said it was his his uncle, like his grandmother's his mother's brother or his grand something. And I think he was one of the first black head track coaches in the country. I don't want to say San Jose State, but something around here. Anyways, Psychoblackology is this book that's like kinesthesiology and movement and whole body living for black people and black athletes. But because of the time, it's very left, very radical. It's like, it's like Black Panther meet yoga. <laughs> it's like hardcore Black politics in the context of like kinesthesiology and movement and yoga and exercise. So, of course, late night digging, found it on a rare book site, you know, offered, you know, a little <laughs> BLM era discount for it. But I paid like a lot of money for this obscure book um, from that time just because I'm, I'm like you, like obsessed with the learnings from from that era you know yeah yeah i think it, i mean it's cool that that era did spawn and birth so many of these sort of different aspects of what's going on that we sort of have been like conditioned out of us in a way where it's just like do compete times and you know in reality like every person isn't just a runner right it's like yourself you're a writer and a, you know you love music and style and you know the richness that makes up people is a part of running as well. There's so many layers to, to all that stuff. But, and we're kind of having to like reconnect with all of that. And it's beyond running too. It's like with food and with our, you know, culture. And there's like almost a, you know, as our society is almost like reawakening in a way, we're starting to see more of these layers again. I think that's like, for me, what it's so, interesting is to you know think about running through the lens of self-love or um you know all of these different pursuits and i think like you've mentioned like poetry and and things like that like running is you know as i listen to you talk about your education and you obviously have a passion for literature and poetry and this stuff i was starting to think about well how is running almost like a similar medium as writing you know where we can use running to work through a broken heart we can use it to express ourselves we can use it to process anger uh, we can use it to connect with other people to share beauty you know all these things similarly with like literature and and the like medium of a pen or pencil or something like that and it feels like that's something that you're sharing in a way where it's you know undefinable there's no like single perspective it it encompasses all these different like layers and richness that is kind of channeled through this medium yeah i think that's what's exciting about this this moment and you know there's no one right way of course which is also encouraging and it's interesting that um you know in a late capitalist context or whatever there's a market correction you know so now the idea that there's like a whole body approach that's necessary for living necessary for running you know, if you got to sell some sneakers, you have to talk about the whole body. It's not just like, this is about the shoe that it might have been maybe even until very recently. I just saw in the news this week that Alexi Pappas, who is um, an Olympian uh, and a filmmaker and a writer um, and just like a 
Instagram celebrity in a way, has a huge following of of young women who really love her kind of like lessons and her aphorisms. Guess she's about to announce some media project. I don't usually think like a Netflix show or something like that, Mm -hmm. but she was just talking about like, it's important. She really wants to make sure that people are addressing the whole body. And I was like, wow, Alexi went out and got a Netflix deal just talking about the whole body. (laughs) Like, obviously that's great. And when you look at um, challenges that young runners, you know, might have uh, gone into, whether that's like body dysmorphia Mm -hmm. or identity, you know, questions or just all the challenges running amazingly is hard enough on its own. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, layering anything else on top of that as teenagers, almost all teenagers experience is is tough to navigate. I, I definitely was difficult for me. So it's encouraging that mm-hmm. now we're seeing more and more approaches and, and more and more stories. But what's interesting, you use the word beyond running. And um, that's an interesting situation, right? That's an intu- interesting situating of it because the concept of beyond is is awesome. So Spino's book was Beyond Jogging, right? Mm-hmm not beyond running. So that title's instructive. And speaking about music, um, I was really impacted by this album by John McLaughlin, uh, Michael's Beyond. Uh, John McLaughlin was English guitarist, um, kind of came up, could, you know, play the blues kind of in that culture, uh, that, um, Clapton models, like collected a lot of blues records and was like learning from across the ocean. Great. Um, played with Miles Davis through that incredible, um, incredibly rich and creative bitches brew moment. Um, and then um, like a handful of people um, started growing under the influence of the guru Sri Chinmoy, who also worked with Santana uh kind of knew Alice Coltrane. He was like in the 70s, he was one of a handful of these gurus who were active who were really kind of kind of doing that. Later on worked with Roberta Flack and then also Carl Lewis. Um and then you obviously you know him as well from mm-hmm. um his work around running in mm-hmm. the 80s and 90s. Anyways, John McLaughlin has this album and it's maybe his guitar, maybe like a meditation era a scene in the living room and there's a photo of Sri Chinmoy in the corner. And he said, uh, and the title of the album is My Goals Beyond. I was like, okay, digging it. There's sitar influences. There's vibes. It's kind of part of my spiritual jazz playlist that we were getting into a few years ago. Uh, but there's argument on in chat rooms about the album because the title has been spelled two different ways over the course of the releases from the two or three reissues on vinyl and then CDs. The the title of the album is either My Goals Beyond, G-O-A-L. I sound like Trump. (laughs) (laughs) G. uh, No, so it's either goal with an apostrophe S or goal with no apostrophe. Okay. Depending on which album you buy in the store. So, of course, you know, I'm out running long and thinking about this argument between it and just how wild the double entendre of goals beyond mean. You know what I mean? So, so in one sense, he might just be referring to 
all my goals beyond, they're in the distance in that ridge across outside of your window. All my goals, they're in the distance that I still have to reach for and to, to, to unlock, you know? Or he might be saying ah, effortlessly, like, my goals beyond. Like, all these goals that I'm reaching for right now, these aren't even anything compared to my real goal. And that one is permanently and finally beyond. So that's kind of like a wild swing yeah. to the left. Maybe you wanted to talk about jogging today. <laughs> no, the concept of beyond is is interesting, you know? And yeah. even even what is that? Is that what happens when you and I walk out of this door? Or is that happen? does that refer to like the other portal of life, you know? Mm-hmm. I've kind of been tripped out on that forever. Like there's a, I think it's chapter 56 in the Tao Te Ching that says, know the whole world without leaving your front door. You know, through Taoism, mm-hmm. you can know the whole world without leaving your front door. And as a kid, getting into Taoism in my teen years, me and my little clique used to think it was like, one guy in our squad was like, thinking through Taoism, you didn't have to go anywhere. You could just like sit up in your crib, mm-hmm. you know, and like meditate your way around the world. Um, that's a cool idea. <laughs> but once I started studying Chinese and doing translation on my own and and worked with a, a translator that Dao De Jing and doing some of my own translations, it's really this idea that a shade more contrary than that, because um, there's some Chinese belief that the soul or the spirit leaves through the forehead or the front door as a portal upon the end of this earthly moment mm-hmm. that we're that we're kind of dreaming in right now. And so through Taoism, rather than leaving not leaving your house. It's about through Taoism and meditation and the principles of of of, of non-attachment and, and whatnot that before the moment of your death, before like leaving this plane, you can know the whole world. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's not about like not leaving your house, COVID era. Yeah. <laughs> Quarantine era. Yeah. But about um before the moment of transition from this moment, you can know the whole world. And so I've been tripped out on that since I was like 16. Yeah. (laughs) Haven't made any progress, but (laughs) I'm still caught up on the apostrophe S. Like, (laughs) which is it? I got to have both albums, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. I mean, I think that's a great way to like take this conversation because it's kind of, you know, reflecting more into that richness of, you know, the idea of running or the idea of goals and like both exist. Right. And yeah, I think it's interesting that you got into like, uh, Buddhism and Taoism as a teenager, because, you know, for me, I feel like I just woke up a few, a couple of years ago, like I'm like a newborn baby in a sense. I was just like tunnel vision, play sports, get the new shoes, play more sports, get the girlfriend, you yeah, know? Sure. And now I'm just like, oh my God, there's this like another 10 dimensions to what's going on right in front of me that I just never saw before. So it's interesting to hear you having sort of discovered some of those threads much earlier on in your life. And I'm curious even just to go back to that and, you know, discussions with your teenage friends at that point. Like, is that something that, you know, stuck with you and has continued to grow over the years? Or did it sort of, did you kind of put it to the side for time? Yeah. I mean, I'm so old at this stage. There's, <laughs> I can definitely claim ebbs and flows. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, it's not, it's not a, uh, it's not bragging when when someone of my advanced uh, <laughs> years says, I'm not new to this, I'm true to this. It's actually been like enough time passed. Interestingly enough, 
my best friend from high school, who was like turned me and a few other folks onto this, has been living out in Venice here in LA for years. And we just reconnected last year. It was cool. Of course, we went to Justo. Whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, damn, I'm about to be like right in the same city as my best friend from, you know, damn near you know, 40 years ago. Uh, uh, no, excuse me, 20 years ago, 20, 25, 30 years ago uh, to reconnect on this vibe. So mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting. I'll, I'll definitely come back if you'll have me for an update yeah, of like yeah. what it was like to kind of connect but there's been ebbs and flows and so even um early on as like a wild 16 year old 17 year old i definitely was attracted not only to the more meditative aspects of that and you know if this was in the early 90s and i was in a little town going to my little town library you know it was like alan watts uh mm-hmm books and like the watercourse way there wasn't like deep treatises or jack cornfield or whatever out on the on the shelves um so my early experiences were with those kind of like 1960s beat generation kind of kind of things and now actually in 2020 going back and listening to alan watts or seeing alan watts's voice as the sound bed for a volkswagen an incredible volkswagen (laughs) commercial um, is interesting to, to, to reflect as well. But so there's been ebbs and flows. I would never claim that I like even approximated any sort of like spiritual enlightenment or whatever. I still, mm-hmm. you know, have like hurt a lot of people and disappointed a lot of people. My own interest in, 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 in monks and poets, you know, were, were Hanshan, you know, um, and, and Hanshan's poetry, as much as they were like, you know, Li Po's poetry or or EQ, you know, I mean, like a tremendous fan of of the the raucous uh, Zen poetry of EQ, and his life was definitely checkered, um, and his work was definitely salacious and erotic, and and uh, <laughs> at times pornographic, um, and he was a Zen monk as well, mm-hmm. um, and so I learned. On a, in a literary level, in a literary sense, and in, in a cultural sense, I learned from a range of practices. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a young man, definitely took those as my standards. <laughs> yes. So rather than withdrawing from from the earthly realm, I definitely like threw myself into it. So I would never claim any of this. I'm only kind of now interested in like sharing those perspectives mm-hmm. that have just been leavened by time and. And uh, and the ways in which like it's affected my own work. And actually, um, there were times when I had to push pause on on the entire kind of relationship, my entire relationship with East Asian religious philosophy, because you know when I moved to New York after school, it, there was a huge renaissance in Black cultural mm-hmm. arts and letters, and I just dived first headfirst into that, and you know at that stage in my life and at that stage in the culture, Mm -hmm. it was really difficult for me to reconcile, you know, having studied Tang dynasty poetry and translation in China and trying to be like a spoken word artist at a Mm -hmm. poetry cafe in Brooklyn and like try to talk to cool girls. Like no one cares that you like speak Chinese when, you know, you're trying to like get your spoken word poem off on stage and get snaps and claps. Um, so yeah, a lot of that, all that 
actually lay dormant within me for a long time until I kind of re-sparked my mindfulness and meditation journey of several years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of the time that it is like almost necessary to put some of those things aside as we dive into new chapters and then sort of reintegrate them later into what ends up becoming a more sort of unique personal sort of tapestry of how we sort of exist and act out in the world as well. Yeah. But yeah, I'm curious to know a little bit more about that sort of exploration for you um, diving into sort of the black literature and poetry. And uh, I know you went to Wake Forest, I think, with running, but then also studied under Maya Angelou and, you know, that sort of, I imagine, sent you down this this path or it was part of that path anyways. And, um, you know, how is, was that something that I'm curious to know as well? Like, did your parents like talk about that sort of stuff with you or? Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. My, my parents definitely, you know, we, my parents were product of, of, of that, that generation and, um, you know, that civil rights and black power generation. So, I'm a product of, of that. Um, they definitely did it through a middle-class lens, I suppose. Um, so it was, and, but my parents also had humble beginnings. And so <laughs> it, it was mixed, right? It was, it was, you know, a, a, a real passionate adherence to like black cultural output and celebrating that, whether that's, you know, the Temptations or Miles Davis or, you know, African art around the, or African art, you know, quote unquote, African art around the house or, you know, the, the, uh, the exhibition catalog from the groundbreaking, um, King Tut exhibit that was here in LA in the seventies. Like so many people had that on their coffee table. Like, of course, Egypt was black. King Tut was black, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, my parents were coming out of, um, you know, more humble beginnings. And so it wasn't sort of like, there wasn't bandwidth for, you know, painting classes or, you know, I, I, I took violin lessons, but it wasn't like, I wasn't like pushed into the arts or necessarily mm-hmm. like, that wasn't part of our conversation. It was about like literacy, um, both like technical literacy and like cultural literacy. Mm-hmm. So it was more, it was more about amassing, the tradition than sort of like embroidering it or, or contributing, con- contributing to the tradition. And so even by the time I went to school and was around, you know, the aegis of Dr. Angelo, um, I was coming off my Zen shit. I was coming off my like Zen poetry shit, mm-hmm. you know, like dreadlocks, Birkenstocks, skateboard, <laughs> you know, and reading like Gary Snyder, Galway Cannell, begrudgingly checking out Kerouac and whatever. And even, even, even a, a catalytic force like Amir Baraka, Leroy Jones, when he was in this mix was impenetrable for me. Um, and it's wild that Baraka became later on, became such a huge influence on my life and my work, you know, and spent time with him quite a bit near the end of his life. Um, so it was, I was under pressure. I was, you know, rock climbing and kind of just doing the extension of like my active lifestyle and skateboarding around campus and writing my little poems and, you know, whatever. But um, I heard, uh, I heard this activist say it recently. There's an activist who 
Her name is Menle, and she does a lot of work around cannabis justice and cannabis cooking. Uh, she's based in Mexico City now, but she worked for a long time in farms in Northern California, cannabis farms, and she was in that community, in that scene. Um, and she heard her say recently that she had to choose, at one point, she had to choose culture over nature. And mm-hmm. in some ways, that's a false dichotomy, but I just thought how interesting I related to that because that's a pressure that I feel black people must face. Yeah. It's a false dichotomy that black people must uh, reconcile because it, they're not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. But coming from the different forces of our upbringing and our culture and our reality, mm-hmm. it's like, it's tough to navigate. And so for me, there was this growing pressure to like reconcile my black identity with like whatever burgeoning artistic identity that I had. And it, it came to a head when I was living in London, like kind of near that end of my university education. Um, in a swift series of events, I went to see a production with my class. I went to see a production of Othello at the Barbican, found it incredibly racist, stood up and walked out in front of my class <laughs> from this production of the Barbican of Othello, which is like my favorite <laughs> play, walked out. And then I think in short order, I took my first trip to Brixton, um, my first deep experience into like going into this like now maybe unrecognizable to people in London, but like a very strong, almost exclusively Caribbean neighborhood and just was in that whole environment as like a young dread. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the first times I ever felt that my blackness wasn't a liability. It was a real strange unburdening. Um, I remember writing about it as a, as a young poet at the time. And then I think I came back and then like was unloading my groceries. Cause I brought like, I bought, you know, bread from the Caribbean baker and was buying my little kind of mm-hmm. like black food, ah, making a statement and unpacking it in my, in my housing situation. And then news came across the radio that, uh, Tupac had been murdered. And so in short order, like, these things kind of shoved me into into like blackness or my own blackness or like mm-hmm. a, an, a, an ineffable sort of blackness. And I remember my poetry at the time went from really being like kind of emotional and concrete and kind of like thinking about these um, aesthetic concerns with like it just broke down in in my hands, you know, like the values that. I was working with as a young writer kind of like crumbled, mm-hmm. you know, on the page or like in my mind and like my writing in that phase became like super fractal, super fragmented, nothing crazy. Now, if you compare it to like a Basquiat canvas or if you're looking at like Amir Baraka, but I went through that, that crucible of a process as a young writer um, and, uh, and came out, you know, fractal and fractured on the other side um and uh so yeah it was it was actually that moment in time was was the beginning of of that and so yeah it was interesting kind of being around dr angelo's influence because she knew all those dudes she was like she was cool with the beats i mean she was so ancient that you know people know her for you know her amazing work later in her career but when she was younger she was a party girl 
you know, hang out with the beatniks in San Francisco. I mean, so much so that my first time I went to City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco on my way to study in China, I'll always remember I went up to the top floor of the bookstore and there was like this old white dude like restringing a guitar. And I was like, yo, is that Lawrence Ferlinghetti? No, it can't be. But of course, it's his bookstore. Like to me, he's like <laughs> legend. I mean, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, like contemporary of the beats, you know? And I stumbled and mumbled out a few words. I had him sign like a, a poem poster that that he had written. Um, and then I, I don't know why, but I like dropped the Maya Angelou thing. Like, oh, I'm a student of Dr. Maya Angelou. He's like, ah, oh, I remember Maya Angelou when she was a young chick trying to get into clubs on the North Shore. And just the idea that like Maya Angelou was like a quote unquote young club chick trying to get into bars. Yeah. Immediately like further glamorized her for me, you know, but uh, yeah, just like, like old ass Lawrence Ferlinghetti remembers like Maya Angelou when she was 18 trying to get into bars. That's, that's the cultural milieu that they were kind of coming out of. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's funny because, you know, you talked about like at, that younger stage being like, you know, concerned with getting girls. And like, I feel like everyone goes through that, right? Like we have a uh, limited capacity, even if you might be into Taoism or you might be into these like more esoteric practices and philosophies at some stage, you know, our self-concept can only be so expanded just because of the experience in our lives. So whether it's in our like late teens, early mid twenties, you know, obviously for some people that carries on into their fifties and sixties and seventies <laughs> that they're just trying to like, you know, get with a girl and get to the next day. But, you know, it's, it's funny that like, we've all gone through that no matter how much we like put these people on a pedestal, you know, due to the wisdom and experience and, and things that they've shared, they were once in that, that stage of themselves and, and kind of like you just described having this like you know, break or crisis of self where those, the values and like idea that we thought we existed within and were ourselves starts to crumble. And it's like, oh, wow, there's, you know, so much more going on here. And then we got to sort of put the pieces of the puzzle back together in some way that we can sort of keep moving forward. Um, You know, I think it's interesting you're talking about too, the the idea of your blackness not being a liability for the first time. And I'm, I wonder, you know, like kind of relating that to the, the Taoist sort of teachings that you were talking about before, where it's like you can sort of travel the world through this meditation. Like you can experience the world within, in a sense. Like I wonder, you know, that idea of embracing your blackness on this level, is that something that you could take then with you through the rest of your life, no matter where you were, no matter you had like a big community or one other person and, and sort of how that sort of changed your relation to that part of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I, I haven't really spoken about everything we've talked about today. Yeah. This is, this is, this is, I mean, obviously I think about this shit all the time. But I haven't spoken about it with anyone. So I'm grateful. It's super uncomfortable and it's like <laughs> blowing my mind, but um to go, I guess these questions you're asking go back to such formative moments mm-hmm. for me on every level mm-hmm. or all these levels that I'm able to recall them. So I don't want you to think I'm sitting around like, can't wait till someone finally asks me. <laughs> yeah. But to your point, it was actually encountering the watered down pop 
version of Taoism that I found, you know, in like my small town library was able, was the, the catalyst for me to unlock a lot of resentment and bitterness that I was beginning to build in my early teen years in the early nineties in this era of identity politics about being black. So I've always been proud to be black. That was like never a day where I was just like, mm. um, and that experience in London in, in the spring of, uh, in the fall of, of 1996, um, was one of the first times that I felt it was embraced by strangers. So different, different energy. So proud to be black, you know, this, this whole time, but the way it was framed by hip hop, the resistance that it was framed by hip hop and film, you know, um, in the early nineties for me, pop culture, Mm -hmm. um, was really a, a, a resistance song that I hadn't ever felt from my generation. So I understood like my parents tell me about the Panthers. I had been reading about Malcolm X since I was five and kids books about Malcolm X and whatnot. But I became even more militant once I had the soundtrack, you know, Mm -hmm. public enemy literally gave us the soundtrack Um, and the films of John Singleton, for instance, Mm -hmm. when Spike Lee kind of like gave you like the visual aesthetic in addition to, you know, the, the rappers, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and the creative directors on the album cover. So, so it was really Taoism helped me unlock some of the more personal negative negativism that had started to reside within me so much so that I wrote my college application essays about Taoism and blackness. I haven't ever thought about this, but I wrote about, uh, Taoism and blackness and, um, (laughs) <laughs> I got into Harvard, right? Got into Harvard with that kind of crazy, ill-informed essay. You're not asking any. You're not running that by your guidance counselor. You're not asking anybody what they think about that. So that was just pure all me. Slap, slap. Just whatever. Like, yeah. away. Um, and I'll always remember. Uh, damn, there was this white dude that I was really good friends with in high school. He's just a tryhard, like always virtue signaling and always trying to like every, even when we were friends was just trying to like one up, you know, and that's a good friend to have because it's making you better. But at the same time, it's super limited and lame and y'all are doing the same things. But the focus is off like we out riding bikes, like cycling, and I'm trying to beat this hill. You trying to beat me up the hill. And I'm like, no, it's about the hill, my G. Um, And I always remember he was so proud to share his application to his Ivy League applications because they were all these like real crass virtue signaling about Malcolm X. (laughs) And when I got into Ivy League schools and he didn't get into Ivy League schools, he was so resentful that he just went around and like told people that it was because of affirmative action that I got in. I kind of like never talked to, I've never seen dude again, but I was like, no dude, you got in. You you don't think that, the person who's reading your application at Harvard wasn't alive in the sixties and knew who Malcolm X was. They read in your essay, you sound like an asshole. You know what I mean? Like I sound like a crazy person, but (laughs) at least you, you got to like follow up with a crazy person, the asshole. They don't want you be like, beat it. Um, (laughs) uh, For the record, I didn't go to any Ivy league schools because I resented the very notion. So I kind of like was like antagonistic towards elitism and entitlement 
because of my blackness and because of my interest in East Asian religio philosophies. Just so anyone listening, like I didn't go the patrician route. I was like, gave the finger to that. But it was instructive as as an exercise in writing and expression and identity that, uh, yeah, I was like exploring that intersection mm-hmm. early on. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, you know, you know, I feel like it's related to that. Something I've heard you talk about before and you even mentioned before with some of the books in the, the 60s and 70s that have black guys on the cover as well. You know, that's something that has been, you know, done through the decades where brands and corporations, authors, whatever it is, are are using the the visual of, of black athletes, musicians, and whatnot to sort of promote what they're doing. And often, you know, it's uh not necessarily the sort of holistic empowerment that it could be, even though it may be, you know, a, a piece like that. And it's as I was kind of listening to you and thinking about my own experience, you know, growing up in a super white neighborhood like not a lot of diversity really but like i loved you know alan iverson i listened to most stuff until the tribe called quest like those were like my my idols and like always you know being so drawn to that um and throughout my life you know and now and traditionally like the reality is i'm then the one who like probably casts the black guy to be in the thing (laughs) (laughs) right right right. you know and it's like not out of anything negative it's probably some you know wishing i was you know like that it seems cool it seems you know whatever it is but i'm curious to know how you've sort of navigated that sort of like you're talking about the the ivy league schools and that sort of thing where it's like you know part of you might be like well you know fuck this but at the same time well let me you know use this as an opportunity and like how do you sort of find yourself navigating that over the years of it's interesting. I mean, I think like it's 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 like so much of a lot of experiences for all of us, you know. Um, but especially with Black Americans, it's like really negotiating these different pressures and conflicts. So we've mm-hmm. kind of talked about them in obscure, absurd mm-hmm. examples, but that's just how um, prevalent it is. So on one hand, um, you're proud that like Miles Davis and his album covers are like works of art and. 20th century kind of like high points of creative direction, you know, or, or whatever. Um, but it's not like he ever like owned stock in, in, in blue note records or Columbia records. And so I think up till today, our job is to understand the past and you can emotionalize it, but that's not going to change in the past. It's like, we can only change our understanding. So as far as tomorrow, then yeah, we need, Black creative directors at Columbia Records. We need black photographers. I mean, Gordon Parks shot incredible photos of Miles, but like, you know, maybe black photographers weren't getting hired for these gigs, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think moving forward, um, all of us collectively, but also black folks have to understand that it's like, or black folks are articulating the idea that it's cool that we're in the ads. You know, it's it's cool that like we're coming to love ourselves for, you know, being, you know, the the dominant cultural force on the planet for the past 500 years, if not before. But it's now we all need to kind of change the lathes at the factories, no pun intended, and just to kind of like redistribute this wealth, you know. Um, And so 
that that kind of is the work for us now. Ownership in a material sense, ownership in a narrative sense, ownership in a spiritual sense. Um, I even think about it in running. I mean, when we're talking about spirituality and running as as younger athletes and and girls, and stuff, I kept it compartmentalized because nothing's cornier than the guy who's trying to like show off his hip hop knowledge to get a woman's attention. Like nothing's cornier than a guy than the athlete who's like using their athletic exploits exploits to, you know what I mean? Because, mm-hmm. well, <laughs> that fades. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I kept it real compartmentalized, you know, which is also problematic because <laughs> girls would be like, but you, <laughs> but I'm yeah. like, ah, sorry. Um, and, and that's something I had to really investigate, like in the, in the past three or four years, like my own heteronormativity, my own like sort of like cisgender male hegemony and, and the extent to which I've endeavored you know, to, to, to participate in, in that cult. Um, that said, um, looking back on running, I can, I can really say that it wasn't a lot of people running in sunglasses, you know, and all these urban races that have cropped up. I mean, for me, I won the first Orchard Street Runners midnight half underground unsanctioned race, like in a pair of sunglasses that I got for like five dollars on St. Mark's Place. So shout out to District Vision. <laughs> Plug District Vision. Everybody fall over yourselves to buy District Vision. But, <laughs> but uh I was running in sunglasses day and night just because I was thinking about the black aesthetic, you know? I had not only reported and written about it, reported on it at the Fader magazine, but then I managed a series of acts, you know, mm-hmm. from Johannesburg and from Flatbush Brooklyn and from Southside Chicago. And uh, sometimes you'd be on tour, you know, and you'd be playing a show, Portugal, like the the, the DJ set might start at 3 a.m., you know, or if you're at a festival, it might be a eight-piece brass band taking the stage at like 11 p.m. or 1 a.m. Mm-hmm. And these brothers were wearing sunglasses on stage. And sometimes you just have to step back and be like, that's really crazy. I understand guys might have bloodshot eyes or whatever, but like, every brother I worked with always had shades on. And like, you look at Miles Davis and like had a lot of shades, you know what I mean? (laughs) And so when I was coming into the running thing, I was, I guess, embarrassingly conscious of bringing that black aesthetic Mm -hmm. into, into running. Um, And so now, yeah, it's cool to, to see everybody running in shades. It's great that like running sunglass companies have cropped up and, and, and folks, um, you know, wanting to communicate that black cool, but that was something that had to be like forced into running, you know, uh, starting in, in 2010, let's say. So it's kind of cool to, to, to reconcile that even though brands have profited from black cool up till today, um, and, um, there is a lack of representation in some senses, but in other senses, there's over-representation with black and brown bodies in order to sell products, cool reconcile that and now let's talk about like material ownership you know in in these magazines and these brands in this narrative Mm -hmm. you know not just from a critical standpoint or from a antagonistic standpoint but from you know a capitalistic standpoint from like a revolutionary 
you know, kind mm-hmm. of commandeering aspect. So that's kind of even for me personally, where I've started to shift gears. You know, mm-hmm. I have been the beneficiary of being in Nike campaigns and being on the cover of Runner's World. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can understand where a lot of people see that as aspirational. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me now, I'm trying to, I'm not trying. I'm now I'm actively working to have ownership in, 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 in this running boom, you know, mm-hmm. and not just merely be the beneficiary of it. Yeah. You know, because honestly that's more intersection of like the black thing and like the East Asian religio mm-hmm. philosophy thing. Right. Because in the, in the black thing from a revolutionary context, it's not about being on the cover of the magazine. It's about being the editor in chief of the magazine. And right. then also having been an editor in chief of a magazine and having put Kanye on the cover, his first cover, I still got fired. so i didn't own it so i built wealth up for the owners yeah put other folks on got paid work working you know and then still got fired and didn't have any stake in the game that i helped create wealth for so now it's not even for me it's not even about being the editor-in-chief of runner's world (laughs) right (laughs) that would be that's not even an ego stroke for me it's like ownership in you know yeah hearst publishing yeah um so for me, yeah, it's like it's not about being in on a district vision ad and it's not about being the plug and being super close with the guys at district vision. For me, it's about like a conversation about to what extent do I have a stake in district vision, mm-hmm. you know, um, just to use a random example. Yeah. Um, and our meditative and mindfulness practice, our learnings from Buddhism would inform that because it's not like Buddhism hasn't engaged in capitalist enterprise mm-hmm. from the beginning but, you know, how are we doing that to benefit the public good? How are we doing that without kind of having the ego stroke of um, material compensation in the late capitalist era? How does that not throw us off our spiritual path of, mm-hmm. you know, work with the ego and, and all that? So it's uh, the moment in, again, the intersection of blackness and mindfulness and running right now it's a new moment right now. It's like ownership and dissolution of the ego and community first. And these are all latent themes. But again, even those are all latent themes in various pockets of conversation. They're not really being incorporated in any kind of like mutual conversation or or practice. Yeah. Wow. So much. (laughs) No, that was was great. I'm just like, okay, now where do I go with this? Because it's like, Yes, you know, like uh, capitalism and Buddhism, like going after the girl ownership, you right. know, like we have traditionally been conditioned to to compartmentalize these things, but in reality, they're not. And to find this like rich, holistic way forward, they have to be integrated with one another, like you're saying. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's definitely important. And that, another aspect, you know, the idea of the sunglasses coming from you know, culture in Miles Davis and now being, you know, predominant in running or other areas of culture. How important is it just to understand that lineage in a way? You know, like a lot of people are gonna be like, oh distribution, cool. Like it looks well, I'm gonna get it. And they'll never know sort of that lineage where somebody like yourself is looking at these musicians wearing it in this like small grassroots, you know, community that's now over the last decade turned into something much more in the canon of pop culture and you know 
how important is it to share that and be like, oh, you know where this comes from, right? Because I feel like... Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, Miles Davis didn't own stake in Bausch & Lomb either. Like, he didn't, mm-hmm. like, he didn't probably know any execs to even have a, a, a shareholder conversation with uh, Rayman, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting how the Black American experience is always going to, like, reach out and incorporate and absorb what's around and and make it their own, make it Black. So it's 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 really interesting that I could be teasing out those references personally and then framing that up based on my background in, in media or as a creative direction. And it's great to like that guys from DV were working in a parallel path and, and had the, you know, absurd idea to like make quality running sunglasses. That wasn't really a, a conversation just as it's really difficult to run a marathon in, you know, a pair of like, vintage dead stock Bausch and Loam sunglasses <laughs> with glass lenses. <laughs> That's hard. looks good on camera, um, well, you know, but you wouldn't want to run in them. Um, so too, uh, the, the, the availability of like sunglasses, I mean, it was Oakley, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's, I guess it's a kind of a fine point to make, but it's just like, for me, rather than running a pair of like, Oakley multi-sport super intense sunglasses I was like well the function is just to kind of like protect the eyes from the sun or you know if for me weirdly running at night was to like block out a lot of the 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 noise and the the ambient light and Mm -hmm. just to kind of like focus on running um Mm -hmm. so it sounds like a dangerous kind of idea but I really in New York City with so much light pollution I was really using sunglasses at night to like zero in on running especially during a, a midnight race or whatever. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that just to reach out and, and pull that and to show it kind of also created the space for district vision to kind of come in with that profile. And then for those of us who are around from the, from the origins of district vision to kind of embrace that as cool um, just feels good. It feels synergistic, you know, mm-hmm. rather than comparing district vision to like these other options. It's like those of us who have rallied around these silhouettes and these brands that appeal to us um, is cool, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and has, has felt okay. Cause the, the mutuality has been there, you know? And so now it's going to be interesting to see what happens, what happens next, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of going back to the the editor-in-chief of the magazine, you know, having actually, you know, both of us have been in that role and sort of the way that you sort of edit together all of these pieces to sort of create a little world in a sense, you know, you get the opportunity to do that fader. Um, and then after that, you were pursuing doing that in terms of a running magazine as well. And I imagine would have had that sort of stake in ownership. Um, I was wondering if you could share a little bit of sort of what your sort of vision for that was and then how you decided to transition that concept into something more digital. And from my perspective, uh, you know, the sort of little I know about it, it feels like it went from, you know, the print platform to something a lot more fluid and organic and almost like a live than, than something printed on paper that doesn't change after it's printed. Yeah. I mean, I think, like you, like I'm a print person, I'm a magazine person, I'm a collector. And so I really haven't, it's really, I was so deep into doing the fader. I mean, it was just like a dream with occasional, 
aspects of the nightmare. But <laughs> it was it was really so incredible as like a young person to have like checked off so many boxes on personal and professional levels, like before I had turned 30. Um, even though like I was like white knuckling it and my life was, you know, kind <laughs> of like falling apart <laughs> um as a result. But uh I really I really I gotta be honest, I still I kind of had the scales fell from my eyes after the fader experience. And so all the great things about it, I had to really spend time reconciling the fact, the, the the extent to which a magazine is a business proposition, you know? And so even again, with the runner's world conversation, it's not about like a black person on the cover. It's about like the value of the ads. It's about the value that advertisers place on the ad that's on the opposing page from the editor's letter. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, who's paying for the magazine and as a business proposition, it's not even at this point, And even by the early O's, it wasn't even about the subscription base. A lot of people think it's about like, sure, subscribers, and I'm canceling my subscription. But it's just like one ad from one rich brand. Like, you don't, you don't even, you don't even like keep up with your subscription base. You're like, that's just yeah. like a, an Excel file. And like, maybe the magazines go out. So that's not, people are, kind of misinformed with what the business proposition of a magazine is. So when it came time to do first run, I kind of was a little flush with cash exiting the music business uh, management uh, that I was doing. And I kind of was like, I just want to put this out as like a baller statement. And mm -hmm. I was heavily influenced at the time um, by Tyler Brule, by Monocle, of course, um, but especially Olivier Zam and Purple Magazine. Um, and just that kind of like, loose, decadent, kind of like waking up at the Bowery Hotel and like smoking a cigarette first thing, you know, before heading to the shoot. Like that kind of romance that that Olivier especially had around Purple um, in the magazine. And then the Instagram then in like 2011, 2012 was the Instagram about the magazine. Nowadays, it's things have turned, obviously, and, mm -hmm. and magazines privilege and prioritize the Instagram and social um, and and the physical copies are afterthoughts if they exist at all. But Olivier's mag uh, handle and purple at the time was kind of about the publisher of this decadent magazine. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do that in running because we know the principle of one of the principles of creative direction is like putting opposite things together mm -hmm. to bring them into relief. So I was like, oh, Running is like grassroots and difficult and hard. So why don't I do a magazine that's about the luxury of it? Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> it was a crass. It was a crass idea, but I was like, I wanted to do a luxury running magazine that was all about, you know, it was it was targeted for that reader who has it all and then signs up for their marath their first marathon because they want a new challenge. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Again, this is super limited, but it felt like it was a business. It felt like it was going to yeah. make sense on a business level. This was at the emergence of during the emergence of Rafa. So right. I was like, oh, Merino. It was like Merino wool was something. There was like brands that don't even exist now that like were coming out with like $2,500 running jackets for the winter time. And so I was like, oh, Gyaxo was just kind of coming out as a Nike capsule collection mm -hmm. before Nike had anything else premium. There was this Gyaxo line coming out that was coming from Jun Takahashi and, you know, had this old Japanese design and cultural provenance. And so the first run as a magazine was going to be about running culture, but like 
in print and production and mm-hmm. execution and aesthetic about the sort of more posh angle of it. Because mm-hmm. from my time in elite training camps, you know, they're getting to a soaking tub after because they're in so much pain from a workout. But a rich person is going to see that and be like, that's ball and out of control. I, yeah. I want to train at altitude you know, and get away from it all. And I want to sit around in a soaking tub after. Yeah. So I was like, oh, well, let me frame, let me put a a, a classist, <laughs> elitist yeah. frame on these the abject and difficult training of like some of my friends who, you know, were starving on their way yeah. to Olympic gold and, you know, silver medal savannas. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's like a funny um, sort of like relation there, you know, like, like Oliver from purple you know it looks glamorous it looks like cool like oh my god he's in paris he's in tokyo he's in new york like he's with these supermodels but like the reality is making a magazine is a grind it is hard it doesn't generally pay that well you are spending more time selling ads than you are you know on set doing a cool photo shoot and likewise with running like it can look glamorous you can be in the mountains you can be at a marathon but the reality no matter what is like it's hard it's yeah. a grind yeah. like <laughs> both of them it's like the 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 glamour is like five percent max <laughs> max you know even the even the parties are not like as you know what you crack them up to be on your way yeah both are you know both both are like again three percent of the people really take it there three percent of the people are really knowing that magazine life you know what mm-hmm. i mean and and the the rest are people around that are buying it and same with running like really a fraction of people really go all out to kind of like unlock and a lot of because fo- honestly it's easier and it's cooler and it's more fun just to kind of like go to the store and put down the credit card and just like buy whatever like new shoe came out so mm-hmm. i get it you know i, I get it i definitely like have done that before but sort of both with magazines and running i I came to them as a kid and fell in love with them before and like had dreams of like being an olympian or a pro runner and had dreams of being a journalist or an Mm -hmm. editor-in-chief and so by the time i had the opportunities to do that i was just kind of like kicking out jams and like reaching reaching for dreams um but yeah to your point in 2012 Instagram was just like so much more rewarding and fulfilling and yeah. intoxicating than thinking about like flying to Detroit and trying to convince Chrysler to take out a back page <laughs> ad, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, um, so even for me, first run, I mean, I blew all my money and um, shot like 80% of it. Uh, and uh, like photographer Andrew Dossimo, like in the desert with, Leo Manzano, who went on to, you know, win a silver medal in London that summer and like just fashion ass, so much great stuff. And, you know, I still have it there in the Dropbox. And now that it's coming up on 10 years, I'm in love with like ideas that blow money. So yeah, <laughs> um, now I've kind of been talking to uh, my creative partner that I kind of just want to sit up and spend the rest of the year just like dumping my camera roll and dumping my my hard drive and dumping my Dropbox and doing like an oversized uh, first run. Yeah. Yeah. 2010 to 2020, you know? So yeah, I'm waiting. If anybody's listening, it has a hundred grand that they want to <laughs> throw away, but I would want to do it uh, the size of, of that whole earth catalog. Yeah. I had, I had the one that they did in um, my parents gave it to me for Christmas, the whole earth catalog that came out in, in 90, 
91, 92, 90, 92, maybe 92, 93. Um, just that oversize. Now it's incredible. You know, it's a, a history. I'm, for those who are listening, I'm looking at uh, Ryan's copy of the whole Earth catalog, which is coffee table oversize compendium of tools for living um, in a ecologically conscious way. Uh, definitely through the filter of like the 60s and 70s, but recipes, diagrams. I mean, not like the Anarchist cookbook, but kind of in that DIY way. I would love to kind of do something like a 10-year retrospective of running culture mm-hmm. in an oversized sort of like tactile way. So if I come up on a 100-gram bag, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll pick your brain about what that could look like. Yeah, I mean, I definitely... I'm like always having to rein myself back in. I'm like, oh, maybe I could do it into the well, like first year, you know, all this content got to print it. And that's what like inventory when I did that was like started, it started online. And I was like, this is too good to just be online. It needs to be printed and, and put out in that sort of context and like sort of, you know, put it on the shelf in that way where it can last forever in this, in the state. And I keep thinking like, Oh, maybe I could pitch a book to them about this. And like, yeah. I just keep getting drawn into it, even though it financially just doesn't really make any sense. It's like drug. It's like drugs. I mean, that's why, again, when I left fader, I never read the fader. Sorry to any other editor who <laughs> came later, but I never read that, you know, um, ex- unless I had abandoned it, <laughs> yeah. you know, or whatever. But, and even then, but yeah, I, um, yeah, I gotta stay away. Like when you're kind of, go sober get off drugs like you can't go around the old friends again so i i definitely try to keep a distance from from magazine stuff because i'll fall right into it look yeah. you i just tell you i just had like <laughs> the crackhead's dream of like what first 10 years of yeah. first run would look and feel like yeah. i can like feel it in my hands that that's definitely the sign of of an addict <laughs> yeah yeah well it's funny too because like when we had our first conversation you know we were talking about this idea of you know how do we explore this you know rich texture of life and culture and sharing it inspiring people to you know learn about themselves to heal to grow to to truly connect with other people but also you know make money you know get the 25 Mm -hmm. bentleys or whatever it was we were talking about and it's like in my mind it's like well you need the product to like as the medium for the message to make the money, whether that's clothing or sunglasses or a book or a magazine, but it's, it's still tricky to navigate what that, what that looks like in, in the right sort of balance where it's not getting drawn into it with that sort of egoistic idea of I'm an editor in chief. I've got the best perspective. I'm, you know, whatever the, the thing is. And, and, you know, I think the mindfulness practice is essential to, to that and not getting sucked into anything too heavily and and being clear and balanced in those choices but it's still a a tough thing to navigate so i'm curious to know how you've sort of continued to share these messages um you know through your writing through the stories and the videos that you're doing i mean you're writing you you wrote an article with like kipchoge where he's in gq you know and he's like looking cool and you know, that's really interesting. If that can like sustain your lifestyle while also like sharing these messages, reframing these things, you know, it's very, it's, it's aspirational kind of like you said, but it's also inspirational and educational. And I think that that's a pretty unique um, spot that you've sort of 
grown into at like culture, fashion, music, sport. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is unique. And so again, in the marketplace, I guess I'm edified that, that I, I can do that, you know, but also say like nice words work if you could get it because yeah. that's not the most popular New York times and calling me up to yeah. do that and runner's world and, and hi, you know, I'm not on the mass at runner's world to yeah. do that, you know? And so, um, I'm a little offbeat or I'm a little on my own beat still. Um, and, and the 25 Bentleys are not even in, <laughs> in, in close focus, but it's interesting too. And not to, to make it a little boring, but it's interesting how you and I like for the past 10 years, us kind of coming out of brand universe, you might want to partner closely with a brand, right? The, the short way to do a magazine or the short way to do a project is to like get the brand, minimize their logo, you know, yeah, like the, yeah. the chance of a lifetime to do something very minimal, minimal, minimally branded and just to get your cool thing out, whether that's a magazine or a product. Mm-hmm. But man, this COVID era and the way it's like, you know, been such curveballs for brands mm-hmm. and, and, and everybody. It's really an interesting opportunity for us to stop and reflect. And for me, I look at the ways in which big brands caught up to running culture and then mm-hmm. absorbed it. And not only is that happening across the general populace, where now big brands are dominating the conversation yet again, when just a few years ago, there was a rich cultural format and conversation happening. But also I look at the creative individuals I know in running culture and outside are so, um, even as independents are so, um, not even enraptured, but in so entranced by the siren songs of working with a brand that that's the only way they can think. Mm. And that idea is so scary and frightening it's anathema to like any creative, you know, yeah. it's cool if you want to be savvy. It's cool if you want to be adept at navigating that and negotiating that if you think you have what it takes. But for me personally, I've in the mindfulness practice is key. And it's interesting. You could, uh, the great thing about the mindfulness practice is how you can call it a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. It's all good. Um, but that awareness really does help you turn away from you know the the sucker and the 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 en- the enchantment and the entrancement of of working with brands you mm-hmm. know on a creative level um i definitely think those resources are still there so anybody listening please keep raising those wires for the boy but <laughs> um i'm really looking forward to come out of this moment and really connect with awareness based individuals and creatives so in a meandering way to go back to your conversation now's the time where brands are scrambling to figure out their strategies forward now's the time for us to like wake up and reconnect and really have these concrete prioritized conversations about what it really does look like moving from this moment forward that we can continue to cultivate the conversation around awareness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's important to reconcile the false dichotomy between mm-hmm. nature and culture. It's important for like black and brown and white people to forge a hasty allyship <laughs> and figure out what we're going to do moving forward. In the future, things can be 
20 years from now, things can be different and different for our children. But like, what are we doing tomorrow? Yeah. You know, and if if tomorrow is like black people taking their own counsel and we don't need to deal, that's cool. And if tomorrow it's just like rolling up our sleeves and getting down to like building something with with allies, that's cool. So I'm, I'm not even determining myself like what the course of action can be, but it's just like, honestly, the work you're doing, the work DV guys are doing, the work I'm endeavoring to do, it's jumped ahead of brands, even as we have our own brands. It's jumped ahead of pitching to brands for them to pay us for our ideas that then they use and then we get paid pennies on the dollar while they own the company. Like there's, yeah. we're not totally free and we don't own, it's not like Zimbabwe out here where we're like taking over diamond mines, but, <laughs> you know, actually building things. I mean, it's so interesting that you're digging into the spirit of Esalen Institute, you know, and to, to work with Mike Spino and to pick his brain and to, to bring back the lessons and the learnings, not only from that time in a halcyon moment preserved in amber, but also how are they applicable for athletes in 2020 and how are they conscious, you know, for conscious beings in 2020. So for me, on that note, I'm building this training camp in Mexico. And it was a cool idea, a little nail-biting idea, another chance to blow money. But now I'm starting to realize the physical act of building a training camp in 2020 to serve runners and to serve. Now I have a clean slate to work with this amazing architect, Michelle Roshkin, a conscious spiritual person who's a great runner, Herman Silva, one of the greatest runners of all time in Mexico, like to work with these guys to build a camp for running and mindfulness. What, what, what does, what does that look like? I mean, this is triggering to you as like a architect and a design person, but like, what does that look like in a material way? If I have an opportunity to build a camp, like what is it going to look like? What is it going to feel like, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's kind of incredible. And it's great that a handful of us are in conversation about these ideas and proliferating old ideas and new ones. Mm -hmm. And if anything, it's really raising high a lamp for other individuals, people who have been outside of the conversation to kind of bring them in to expand our conversation, you know, like yeah. where are the women in our conversation, where are like the black and brown people in our conversation, where are the elders in our conversation, where are the young people in our conversation, you know, just talking about this brother earlier, Rio, he's out here running, he's doing his thing. It's cool. And he posts the book, Psycho Blackology. It's just like, okay, what's Psycho Blackology <laughs> in 2020? Yeah. You know, um, it's a, a, a wild moment in time that very few outside Rio's family might have heard of. But nevertheless, the book is a material fact that I paid a, a, a fair amount of money for off the internet. So what do I do now that I have that book in my possession? What do I do that I have these radical ideas about you know, kinesthesiology and, and movement practices mm -hmm. uh, for black and brown people in underrepresented communities. So what are we going to do? What can we do? And, and, and I mean that uh, in the first person plural, like we, like it, it's yeah. not just like one person virtue signaling on Instagram. It's not one person with a follower account. Like I'm so mindful, follow me, you know, I'm yeah. so mindful Buy my t-shirt. It's like, yeah. cool. We have yeah. platforms that aren't contingent on 
ad sales now through social media, but it's like, <laughs> while, you know, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg are profiting off all of us on these platforms, what can we do to like build things like in our own, our own councils and our own conversations, you know, and how do we do that? What does that look like? How are we reaching out to fresh voices or underrepresented voices? How are we ex- extending the opportunity to others as part of our design, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we do occasion to like work with big brands and small, mm-hmm. how do those brands anticipate and understand and accept that the new way of working is like progressive, ecologically sustainable, sustainable on a business level. And like, there is always every step of the way, a community building, a give back component Mm -hmm. in all our moves that we make. (laughs) Yeah. That's all we have to do. (laughs) Starting tomorrow. For now, as, as, as Andy on Headspace says, but for now though. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think that's so true though. I mean, I think like, you know, I've certainly fallen into that trap of, you know, trying to think of, okay, what brand can I pitch this to in a creative way? Just, just to allow me to put this out, you know, but like you said, it's like this weird glass ceiling conditioning that we've got ourselves into in in many ways where it's like, well, that's the only way, you know, but it's like, we can't really solve these deeper issues of really creating something new, a new paradigm by just trying to force the old way of doing it through and you know it's funny i as i sort of put this sort of idea of like old ryan like the creative director want who wants to be an artist like into like the shelf to like un look un, into the like spiritual emotional realm and that sort of is like grown up now it took this uh movie about andy goldsworthy this nature artist and literally as the like credits were rolling i was just like oh my god i'm like totally denied this whole part of my education and interests and stopped looking at the world through this you know open-minded way that's just so much richer um and i wrote the article called uh how i saw the world changed or how i see the world changed and it was just like kind of in it meant like two different things i guess in terms of the wording of it but it was like oh yeah through art actually there's so much opportunity that you can see the world in a different way you know just from like slight perspective changes but over the last few years i've gotten so conditioned to like okay pitch the thing to a brand try and get them to pay for it and and really feeling like damn i'm like this battery you know that's like getting drained by the machine of our like capitalist society just so i can charge like give them my money Mm -hmm. after they drain me sure give me a little bit of money then i'm gonna give you the money right back again right and it's like well this cycle is not gonna work so you know through mindfulness and looking outside of what i'm used to looking at and then having conversations like this that is like oh like that's possible i didn't really know that you know and and you have to be open and then aware of kind of what's happening and allow yourself to really understand that that there really is anything possible i was even just you know i've been developing this brand concept and i'm like going through the pitch in my mind and like how i can like make it safe for the investor to understand like you know oh we can just do one 
location and if that's okay, maybe too. And, you know, part of it's through being an independent business owner and, and that side of it, you know, it's like, well, why not, you know, a hundred locations? I'm just like, I've deconditioned myself to dream that big. And it's like breaking down some of those like invisible boundaries that we have on our own potential and our, you know, even more so as a potential of collaborators of what's possible. Cause really then it just explodes exp- exponentially you know, getting a few people that are starting to think in that way, what's possible. And, you know, talking about this um, retreat workshop center in Mexico is like, you know, just like literally anything is possible. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> in good and bad ways. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, it's interesting too, like to go back and to keep pulling those pieces. Yeah, for me, it's like, yeah, on, uh, on this moment, recognizing that brands are ruling, <laughs> our lives more than governments are um, and recognizing that we're not changing that anytime soon. And if anything, that's just like a, the world changed and the shift in <laughs> human history. Um, so having the awareness of how to negotiate that and to work with that is, is one thing. So it's almost like for me, and again, this is a little tedious and practical from my perspective, from, from my, from coming from my side, but it's almost like now it's like, really given all that time and energy and love and attention and intention to our ideas, our modular ideas and getting those really solid. So we internalize them and we believe in them. So when we do come up in a brand conversation, this is, this is where you could fit in, but this is what it is, you Mm -hmm. know, and having the lines in the sand. And so if anything, it's weird to kind of go back to, you know, for me, like, a, a, an imagined black power aesthetic or like list of demands mm-hmm. it's like now when i'm when i'm working with a brand i'm thinking strategically about like what are going to be the points of negotiation mm-hmm. because the idea can change and improve and whatever but the belief system is intact and so yeah. really the strategic george bush would say the strategy of 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 negotiation is really kind of like leaving that aperture for for like more incidental items or, or, mm-hmm. or, or points in a relationship or, but it's important to know what your list of demands are, what your list of demands is and, and also what the line in the sand is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I think that if anything, what's, what's interesting is I've seen after the murder of George Floyd, I've seen a lot of black creatives on Instagram use the phrase line in the sand mm-hmm. um, independently. It's not part of any like, meme that's going around it's not a hashtag i've just seen like a handful of people in the arts a handful of people in you know creative production or whatever just as they're speaking or Mm -hmm. a line in the sand and that's such like an old concept Mm -hmm. that you would never think it would gain prominence or sharpness in this moment but it's just interesting that like a handful of us have found recent events to have drawn a line in the sand for what we're going to tolerate mm-hmm. when working at the Guggenheim or even patronizing the Guggenheim, mm-hmm. what we will accept from SF MoMA, what we will accept from the Broad, not only as employees, but like as patrons, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? What we're going to, you know, accept from Microsoft when they, they have a huge check for us. And they want us to, you know, do an installation 
for Black Lives Matter, but Mm -hmm. in 36 hours, you know? So what are the lines of the sand? And for me, you know, what are the lines in the sand for me when I'm working and running culture for Mm -hmm. me moving forward? And so that's an interesting opportunity because lines in the sand, also plural, it's, it's really lines around your conversation, mine, like how, if I'm drawing the lines, (laughs) you know, or if I'm like have purview on the lines, how can I incorporate your work to become a force multiplier? How do we bring Mm -hmm. all these disparate threads and these micro conversations in this moment to really share a vision, you know, for what this progressive, open, awareness-based movement can be, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, I think like when you're talking about the lines in the sand, I'm sort of imagining that like being like the boundaries around like what are your values or like what are my values, you know? And I think it's not something that we're generally taught to really like meditate on or, you know, flesh out and get clear on, but we kind of have to understand that to some extent to know what we will accept, to know what we're fighting for. You know, if we're going to have the discipline to run a marathon, you know, we understand what is important in doing something like that, but to have, you know, that same sort of approach to life in general, or just humans treating one another or working with a brand is it's a little bit trickier in a way where it's, you know, maybe harder to define, but I think it's really important. Yeah. And we're probably shy to the conversation around values because the word values and the idea of values was so thoroughly, thoroughly owned by like conservative right wing mm. politicians and, and political dialogue. And in, in as we grew up like eighties, nineties and O's, mm. you know, family values being like definitely a, a sharp, you know, bold face kind of like co-optation of, of values, but you know, all the way along, you know, conservative values, mm-hmm. uh, you never really hear it described in any other way. So it's interesting for us to even embrace a simple concept about like, you know, what are our, what, what are our values? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's like the power of conversation is, is talking about these things. Cause otherwise, you know, I say that in the, in the podcast and somebody maybe associates it with something else. You know, I did this brand deck one time and I had all these pages of like images, but then I did like a corresponding page that explained every image Mm -hmm. because, you know, the saying like a picture says a thousand words, it really does. Mm -hmm. And a word can say a hundred words, you Mm -hmm. know? So it was like, okay, this is what this image is saying. And so often we just assume that people are going to understand what it is we're trying to communicate through that image or through that word. But in reality, they can take it a million ways themselves. So I think it's like, you know, getting clear on our values, but it's also what our values, you know, and then explaining the values themselves. It's just like, there's so much context needed in this process. It's interesting. I think that's, that's kind of the, the conversation about that we were talking about, like bringing in different points of view and different perspectives underrepresented points of view and perspective into the conversation because when you're talking about the level of the image this is work that we do but for a lot of us in creative circles a lot of us strongly feel that there's a difference between an image of a black person photographed by a white person and an image photographed by a black person and that doesn't mean that a white person's going to take a racist image and like a black person won't ever take a racist image that could happen that's just that's mm-hmm technical that's a camera you know um but in terms of 
the rapport between photographer and subject, the edit, you know, mm-hmm. the the dynamic, um, both in the moment of taking a picture or making a picture, as we used to say sometimes, mm-hmm. and and then what happens after with the work. Mm-hmm. It's super fascinating. So everything from, you know, this conversation around uh, the Vanity Fair, just, you know, working with their first uh, black photographer for their cover for the first time just now. Um, or, you know, in Bristol, when people tore down the Edward Colson statue and threw it in the canal. And then the next day, you know, this incredibly impactful statue of a young black woman from the protest <laughs> had already been erected like 48 hours later or, you know, shortly thereafter. But the, the sculptor who made it had an incredibly terrible abject track record when dealing with black people and dealing mm. with like, you know, definitely um, has his detractors. And mm-hmm. that was like a huge uproar on social media. So um, whether it was this white artist centering himself with this incredible statue or this super dynamic statue of a black woman um, and centering himself in that moment and that dialogue, or it was problematic because of like his work and who he was as a person and, even at the level of the image, um, this work he had done around a black woman in his life and how he refused to like show it to her and incorporate her into an approvals process and escalating kind of legal claims and whatnot. Um, so it's, it's nuanced in all those levels, but in terms of you and I talking about what informs this conversation you and mm-hmm. I are having, yeah, when we start to bring in different viewpoints, you know, um, yeah. And, and it's, and it's tricky, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there are people out there. We just got to keep trying, you know, there are people out there working in creative that are great. You know, um, you wouldn't say like Andy Leibovitz hasn't done incredible work, mm-hmm. but you know, also her work and career is problematic in some analyses. You wouldn't, some brands have you know some of the best photographers, you know, working in running and cycling might be, you know, white women and it might be an opportunity for black women to come in and like shoot for, you know, brands in that way. So um, the conversation is is interesting because you want to solidify the gains we've made, just like in running or Mm -hmm. in mindfulness, you want to solidify the gains we've made, but there's always something beyond, you know, and we can't be frustrated by that. Um, We have to really like embrace that as like a central practice. Yeah. 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 And it's, I guess, you know, going back to that mindfulness and we got to create that awareness with ourselves so that we can you know, take that into relationship, take that into work relationship and like really flash that out. And it is a lot of like self inquiry that is going to hopefully get us to those places where, you know, we're making those choices with a conscious intention rather than whatever subconscious like conditioning is like led us there. Yeah. The mindfulness practice has so many gifts. So like the recently uncovered John Coltrane album, Both Directions at Once, kind of on a good day, <laughs> once in a while, you were able to to do both. You're able to like reflect on that process mm-hmm. and also like enact the process or mm-hmm. the kind of one of the particular and peculiar things about the mindfulness practice in particular is that it does have like a lot of levels of, of radiance mm-hmm. as you go with just like the simple practice, mm-hmm. you know? So it definitely builds on itself yeah. in a way much more than 
we can do it. I mean, you, you get more from just like the consistency and letting it creating the conditions for it to build on itself mm-hmm. rather than like the materialist way and like getting more yoga mats, getting yeah. more expensive incense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. Like you, we want to, you know what I mean? Like, Oh, but this, no, but this incense, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, oh no, th- this is cruelty free Palo Santo. Like, so, <laughs> you know, the, the, the capitalists in us definitely are always going to, you know, reach for the expensive beads, <laughs> you know, but Thankfully, the practice uh, builds, you know, whether you're like in an ashram or you're in an airport. So, yeah, totally. To take it back to running and also sort of this idea of like polarities and sort of within a a single sort of activity and whatnot. Like, you know, a lot of the running that I understand you've done has been around elite professional athletes where it's like programmed track workouts and um, tempo runs and, you know, with a clear goal of certain times for marathons and stuff. But you've also, I saw on your Instagram hung out with, uh, not sure how to say his whole name, but Ash, who's doing like 3,100 run in New York for like the last 15 years. And, you know, that run is about self-transcendence. And, you know, you're also hanging out with like Ricky Gates and Scott Jurek and these guys, you know, from my perspective, they're trying to win races at times, but it's also this, deeper exploration of our inner world when you're out running for 24 hours straight or six days straight or you know like uh, the 3100 it's like 50 days straight of like two or three marathons a day type of thing it's like how do you um sort of explain your experience or talk about your experience like as the sort of timed splits professional runner versus this sort of self-transcendence running i think honestly that would be a mystery to me like for when i was a younger runner and if i hadn't really kind of like sat down and looked at those personalities you met met across the board and it's honestly kind of the going back to that experience of like studying with dr angelo in school where you know this whole storied reputation about her her books and her reading the inaugural poem at the Clinton inauguration in you know ninety January ninety four or whatever, and then you meet someone who knew her when she was young before she was famous, and you hear that, and then you're in class with her, and she yells at you in front of the whole class because you skipped dinner that she made at her house because you like did went to go see some beatnecks read like <laughs> you know so when when when. I've been around, you know, Ricky Gates, Scott Jurek, Herman Silva, you know, Leo Manzano, um, and, and Ash Brahanel as well. Those athletes are, um, are, are regular more than they're not, you know, but we know them because of these breakthroughs. And I think breakthroughs come when they come after moments or in moments, but after moments of reconciling those conflicts. And what I mean by that is when I've met these folks that we are, you know, kind of rattling off those names, they're, they're really competitive, mm-hmm. you know, um, no matter how chill they may be, you know, like an athlete, like Scott Jurek, you meet him today. He's worked hard to be chill. Like if you look at, if you read mm-hmm. his, his book, eat and run or whatever, and his own, by his own admission, like he was kind of like, an asshole when he was winning, you know, these incredible races and it's only later in life and kind of like 
whether it's a combination of like vegan, you know, diet and kind of having reached a athletic plateau and, and, and a relationship, amazing relationship in his life with, with his wife, Jenny, you know, those kind of things transfigured him to then pursue the speed record on the Appalachian trail. He yes. still had the competitive drive mm-hmm. to want to have a break a quantitative metric, like a record. It's just that mm-hmm. the record was so extreme that he needed to do that. If you talk to Ashpahanal, like he knows his marathon time. Like yeah. he's, he wants to win. He he's out to win. It's just that for him, the race is 3,100 miles long <laughs> and it's tough. And to do that, he probably needs to not probably it almost certainly from what I observed out there. And also, you know, with the, the women's winner, um, Harita, um, they really cleave to their spiritual closeness to the Guru Sri Chinmoy. And so it's really the spiritual sustenance and strength that maybe helps them leaven that self-centered and competitive drive and 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 kind of changes it through some kind of alchemy to be something beyond, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I ran with I was around I've been Ash, around Ashpahanal a lot. He's humorous, talks a little trash, has a weird Finnish sense of humor. He's from Finland. Um, and it, and it's just like we would have more in common than you might think from a guy who like spends his summer vacations for 15 years, like running around a block in Queens. <laughs> but I also ran um, the last lap or two with Harita, the women's winner last year. And um, man, you can just imagine how rough shape someone is after running like, you know, 3,000 I actually know. don't know if I can. Yeah, 3,000. <laughs> I mean, I was running with her on like yeah. mile 3,098 and a half. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to be around for the end, you know? Um, but she was just talking about how the night before she didn't think she could do it and like how challenging it was. And she really had to reach down into a spiritual well mm-hmm. and kind of remember kind of like some learnings from her practice to like propel her. And she had already done damn near all the work. She had like two laps to go. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, Ricky Gates is super chill and I had a great experience, you know, running with him on these 14ers in the Rockies and, uh, he, you know, ran across the United States in a solo supported effort. But, you know, I've like had a few laughs with him about like his competitive days in particular races. Mm-hmm. And I'm still the journalist, you know? Yeah. I remember running, we were talking about, you know, Killian Jornet. You know, everyone, oh, Killian, Killian. And I was talking with Ricky kind of when we were first getting to know each other out on a run in the Rockies, you know, for his hut to hut to hut uh, week that he does. He had me out there for that. And I was like, oh, man, Killian. I remember this one race, you know, that he was in. And I saw this footage. They were like a few miles from the finish. And it was like Killian and another dude were up on this ridge. And you could just see the VHS footage of him. And to get down to the bottom of the mountain, the bottom of the ridge, there was like, they had to go through a series of switchbacks. And at the top of the ridge, Killian just stopped, turned abruptly 90 degrees to the left and just ran down the face of the mountain instead of taking the switchbacks. And, the, you know, like the Killian approach. So like the, the Pyrenees approach, you know, and the other dude like ran the switchbacks and Killian won. The other guy got second and the race director, and I was just going on and on about it, the race director, Ban- disqualified Killian 
then afterwards allowed him to keep the first place because there was no rules about that and then gave the prize money to the second place guy. And I said, oh, that was kind of interesting, just cultural differences in trail running. Um, And I was like, yeah, the second guy got the money. And Ricky said, yeah, that was me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so Ricky is is competitive, you know what I mean? Even as a chill bro. Uh, all these cats are competitive. Like Eliud Kipchoge may be like super really spiritually elevated, mm-hmm. but like he's that dude is, you know, he's he gets flashes in his eyes that look like it'll end your life. You know what yeah, I mean? yeah. So I think it's really if we're looking at those aspirational models and inspirational models, it's like what we've been talking about this whole time: reaching into your past, and it's really reconciling our own contradictions. It's really about reconciling that intense competitive drive mm-hmm. with the transcendence that's needed to move beyond that and go somewhere beyond, you know? And even in my own running, I've probably had my biggest breakthroughs when, whether as a kid, I was able to like let go of like petty rivalries with a kid across town and then just like train in a different way with other mm-hmm. people that by the time I like tried to renew the rivalry, because I thought I, I thought that's what sports was about like yeah. rivalries like i was so much faster than the kid that it was like embarrassing to me and i almost like if i had held on to that rivalry for another day or at that race i would have like limited myself yeah and then later in life you know i had a huge breakthrough in the half marathon in like my last good race a couple years ago and <laughs> it went from it was it, the race was in valencia spain at the world half marathon championships and the plan went from like me flying out with my lady and our baby, and we're going to go to London and see a friend and then pop on a train and head over. Like my partner got sick. The next day, a hurricane hit, a winter storm. So all the flights got canceled. And I ended up catching a, a rebooked flight, flew in to Madrid the night before, went to my hotel room, drank a bottle of wine jogged in Madrid in the morning, got on the train, went to the race. And the race was like 3 p.m. in the afternoon, got off the train, changed my shoes, and then like had ran faster than I ever thought was possible. And it was just everything else had fallen away. All the concerns, all the hangouts, all the transfers. And I had a shitty travel schedule. But once that was like the metric, then I just was like, well, all I have to do is just like stay chill on this travel schedule zone out and so i just went through like was on the train zoned out stepped off and then like ran 69 minutes in the half marathon so it's kind of like the breakthroughs come from embracing the conflicts and the contradictions you know um after you've done the practice to prepare for that reconciliation i'd say yeah you know yeah i feel like there's certainly something to be said for like putting in the work and then from there you're surrendering yeah and i think you know it made me think of even just um, what you're talking about in your childhood where you're, you're racing with your friend and he's racing against you, but you're racing against the mountain. And then from there, it's like, now I'm racing with the mountain. Yeah. You know, and, and, and there's like an evolution to that, which I imagine, you know, like Mo and uh, Elliot. And then, you know, on the other side, like the Rickies and Scots, you know, there's just like a deeper motivation. That's not, I need to beat this guy. You know, and it's funny because like, I don't know if you watch like the documentary about Jordan, The Last Dance and that stuff. And it's like, we see guys like Jordan, Lance Armstrong, these people, like they become the best in the world, but it's 
often fueled by a lot of pain and anger, guilt, shame, like these things. And, you know, then we put these people on a pedestal and try and mimic that or be like that, you know, and we don't see the other 90% of their lives that, you know, is often crumbling and, you know, in dis-ease. And, you know, I think that's why I started looking to these athletes that are running ultra marathons in the mountains is because it's there, there isn't that same sort of glamour or pedestal like thing. Like to do that, you almost need to surrender to this like greater intention to pull from, you know, do it out of love to enjoy 24 hours of running through the forest or running around the same block. You know, the, the things you learn from that approach and that sort of combination of like conscious intention and surrender is just provides so much more of a rich, fulfilling experience that can go out into every aspect of your life rather than just like pure, I need to run, beat myself up just to beat this guy, you know? Yeah. I didn't watch the docu- the Jordan. I mean, this yeah. is hectic, but I didn't watch the doctor, the Jordan documentary for that reason. I knew it was super popular and everyone was yeah. chattering about it. And again, on the, I had to reconcile the black thing because yeah. it's like black excellence. Uh, so I wasn't like virtue signaling that I was like not watching it, but just knowing what I know or knowing what we know about him and just knowing that that reconciliation hasn't been there, knowing he's in a lot of pain, mm-hmm. but also, <laughs> yeah. So that's tough. And to, to have had a couple personal experiences with Lance and like to think about it. And it's cool. He's like a great personality now and a podcast and like a real vital commentator uh, for the tour de France and, and, and cycling, but also unrepentant. Um, yeah. Those, those models um, from a Buddhist perspective would be distractions. Right. Um, and really we could ex- exclusively spend our effort, like seeking out, you know, those, those other ways. And that's why that combination of that, that Sri Chinmoy's uh, Love, Devotion, Surrender, that was the name of uh, a, a collaboration album, a Sri Chinmoy-inspired collaboration album between Carlos Santana and John McLaughlin, mm. Love, Devotion, Surrender. They're playing like electric prog rock versions of A Love Supreme. Um, there's, it, it's just, the cover is so iconic. Um, it's Santana, and McLaughlin with their arms around each other, like sharing a laugh, looking down as like their mid. It's like looks like two dudes leaving a a, a groomsman's party or like mm-hmm. that because they're wearing all white like suits. Yeah, um, and they're laughing at something, and it says "Love, Devotion, Surrender." And so you have to have the album in your. And also, no one, it wasn't really that popular, so you can find it real cheap. So you have to have it. Yeah, but I never could crack it. I never could really get into the music, mm-hmm. and I was like. I like John Coltrane. I love Supreme. Why do I need these white dudes like shredding (laughs) guitar on top of it? Um, And then having gone a little bit into the journey myself and to put the pieces, now I kind of understand what they were doing. My musical taste has expanded. And now like this album is crazy because they also do this amazing cover of uh, Lonnie Liston Smith, Let Us Go Into the House of the Lord. That was also uh, incredibly done by Pharaoh Sanders. Um, so the al- the album is is incredible, and then it's Shri Chinmoy's on the back, like with his <laughs> arms smiling, happy on the back with both these guys. But I, since coming back to that album and appreciating it with new reference points, I've really been thinking about that combination of love, devotion, surrender. You know, um, and the order of words, those words, and what 
what the combination of those are they cyclical you know mm-hmm. i mean on the album cover they're just like arranged in a line yeah but are they like you know the diagram on the shirt you're wearing is it cyclical yeah. and and is that the right order we already know john mclaughlin made one typographical error so how do i know <laughs> that he got it right on this you know but yeah. i really yeah i've been thinking about those three words in combination with one another because also they would also be their own wells to to yeah. to use your word um they would also be their own wells of work to to experience. So, yeah. And if love, devotion, surrender are related, then we must have to redefine love yeah. um, for it to relate to devotion. We can't just go from like Hallmark love or like R and B song love to devotion because then that sounds like stalker behavior or that sounds like a codependent relationship Uh, surrender sounds like you're surrendering to the police so this is like in the r&b formulation love devotion surrender sounds like verse one two and three of like (laughs) you know of of a bad r&b song but so in a spiritual thing it's just like what does it what for that kind of formulation how do we redefine our relationship with love and what does that look and feel like? And then how does that relate to devotion? And then how do we, you know, redefine devotion and then obviously surrender, Yeah. you know? So those are, those are ideas that I'm kind of turning over for myself mm-hmm. all the time in absence of a guru, since I'm not like a guru follower type, I just like mm-hmm. we talked the other day, I'm like super into that, but um, yeah, I'm thinking about it all the time. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, especially those words in that order. Mm-hmm. And also the idea of like them being cyclical. It makes me think of like, um, you know, like strands of DNA in the like Helenix or like the hero's journey where it's, you know, it's kind of a more of a spiral that kind of you keep going through it and through it and through it. And there's not really an end like a like in a circle, obviously. And, you know, with my own practice. I feel like more and more that I sort of get through it, I'm like seeing these patterns. And even in relation to that, it's like, okay, I'm, you know, I spent a couple of years just really looking at my relationship with my father and my mother and act like sport and physical activity. Um, you know, and so much of it is like getting into the love of it. And then because I'm realizing, oh, well, if I love myself, then I'm going to act in this way. And I'm going to like have the discipline and devotion to like have be that sort of warrior for that purpose of having love for my father. And then at some point there is like the piece of surrender. And it's almost like that pattern is like used for all of these different components that I sort of dive into in this like spiritual healing path. And then it's, you know, the integration of all of those together that gives you enough of a sort of foundation to keep going. Cause I feel mm-hmm. like as you keep going, you know, it's, you get the easy, easy to pick fruit and the, the higher up in the tree, it gets harder to, to get the fruit. Sure. But it's still the same sort of technique. It's still the same pattern. It's just harder. The, the love is almost harder to tap into. The devotion takes more discipline. Sure. And the surrender is more challenging just cause the conditioning is stronger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you have those little moments where you're laughing the other day. You have those little moments as asides when uh, <laughs> you're, you're on your mindfulness journey. And sometimes you have to like check in your wallet and check the receipt, you know, dig in your pocket, be like, did I pay for this? Cause um, 
yeah, the, the, the realization, you know, to use that word, the realization that with increased awareness comes increased sensitivity. That's not, they don't tell you that yeah. when you get the 99 cent Acme meditation kit, like, you know, you're, the, the pitch to meditation is you'll be able to fly. You'll be able to, you know, transcend, you know what I mean? You'll be, you know, a spiritual guru. And, uh, they never tell you that, um, of course, awareness is inextricably linked, bound up in increased sensitivity and awareness. So, man, we're you've done the work to be more sensitive so you can handle it, but it doesn't mean that you're less sensitive. So you, what I mean is, for an instant, you feel cheated. <laughs> you're like, well, I'm supposed to be able to handle this. Why am I even paying attention to this? Oh. I'm aware of this because I've done the work to be aware of it. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, and I can handle it. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> I've done the work, but like it doesn't change. It does it's <laughs> relentless. And so when you were kind of talking about the hero's journey and the 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 double helix nature of of it, I was gonna be like, yeah, it, it kind of only begins and ends in like the Star Wars trilogy, but obviously Star Wars keeps going too. So even even in the Hollywood version of the yeah. hero's journey, they can't get enough of it. Um, but it's really, um, it's interesting to consider what, when I was, when you were saying that, I was wondering what the drive is. Is it that aforementioned competitive drive that keeps us going, you know, but it really is that devotion component, you know, it really is sort of like, it's, 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 it's not competitive. So something is driving our own hero's journey or our own mindfulness journey, our own running journey sometimes, you know, and in the absence of competitive drive, um, like we never talk about spiritual drive. Sometimes you talk about spiritual drive, but it's almost entirely like um, teleological, you know, like with a purpose in mind. It's so it's just weird to think that there's like a self-sustaining yeah. spiritual drive that, that keeps us kind of like searching or moving towards that beyond. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, that is really interesting. It's, it isn't really necessarily talked about. And I haven't actually really thought about that too. Like what is driving me to continue to like dive into my own shadow? Cause there's no winning that game. There's no beating anybody else. It's just me going into the darkness and hopefully getting glimpses of light here and there, like along the way and enjoying that as much as possible. But like through that, that experience has translated into, you know, work, career, running exercise where it's like, well, I'm not, competing for anything like at one point i just threw my running watch in the garbage and you know it was just like i'm just going out and you know going one step at a time and there's definitely like a shift there but there is still a drive and i feel like that's our human nature in some way like our soul is like here to to learn and expand and grow and heal in this lifetime as much as we're capable of doing and then hopefully passing that down to the next generation, I think. Yeah. Mostly by doing it by example, but, you know, also yeah. by sharing what we can. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, too, because I kind of fall back from, since I have my own kind of like spiritual direction, my own kind of interest from, from, from younger, I kind of fall back from a lot of contemporary mindfulness experts and all that and podcasts and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but I, I do... I do kind of like reading about the way that meditation and mindfulness 
negotiates the human brain and like the good things about the human brain and also like the savagery Mm -hmm. of the human brain. That's a product of our evolution. Um, And if you think, if when you think about it like that, about the evolution of the human brain and how we can negotiate it in a 21st century way with this conversation we've been, oh, with the things we're talking about in this conversation, this conversation we're having (laughs) won't do much, but, but so, but it's interesting. And it's also interesting that running also has roots, obviously back to that moment Mm -hmm. in our species, but it's interesting to like really wonder to what extent we've been working on a mindfulness practice from our early human origins, you know, and I haven't read that much about, you know, that, I mean, these days Mm -hmm. you'd think meditation started with some of these apps, (laughs) (laughs) but I wonder the contrary. I wonder if we've been working on it for 85,000 years. I mean, how could you not? Yeah. These are obviously like highly aware creatures. Mm -hmm. Um, I highly aware humans. Um, And so if anything, you have to wonder the extent to which we're so numb with all our apps and all our technology Mm -hmm. and all the watches we throw in the trash or whatever compared to, people who were meditating and running 85,000 years ago. Um, So I I think about that. And I think about that because what can we coalesce and solidify as learnings to pass on from here? Mm -hmm. You know, like I first saw it in running when people were like, oh, there's that running thing is, is a, is a, uh." first in New York, people were saying like, oh, they're running fad. And I was like, well, know if it's a fad i kind of been doing it my whole life but i hear what you're saying anyways it's cool see you at the party and then the next summer you'd see the same person they'd be like the running thing is oh you still yes it's kind of a trend right and i was like well i don't know if it's a trend i mean if it is i'm i'm riding it but like for me it's not really a trend and then the year after that like you see someone struggling through the new york city marathon you know yeah um (laughs) and uh and so if I'm optimistic, like I'm optimistic that this might, that this moment has the potential for us to like shift as humans. Mm-hmm. Our natural world is, is damaged mm-hmm. perhaps irrevocably. Our human relationships just in a few years are, are more frayed and more strained than we've seen, you know, in, in several generations. Um, our, love lust relationship with technology is kind of like spiraling out of control in a way that like people can't even handle, you know, the singularity is real. Um, and, uh, I kind of still hold out hope that conversations like this might actually build towards something. Mm -hmm. And then we're able to like pass that down to the next generation or the next generations to, to take it from, from here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that it is. And, you know, it's funny, I've grappled with this, like, desire to, you know, have a million subscribers and like reach the world and have that sort of impact. But in reality, you know, just from messages of God or experiences I've had, it's like, one or two people, you know, at least are messaging me or whatever it is. And it's like, well, that it is making a difference. And it can only be really, you know, one person at a time. And I feel like that is, you know, makes it worthwhile. It's so daunting because people don't even talk about that stuff anymore, right? Whether it's like number of albums sold or the number of followers you have. But, you know, in New York City in the 80s and Bosco and Warhol and Patti Smith, there was always the maxim that it was like, you didn't 
want to be, it wasn't about having a hundred thousand yeah. fans or followers or a million album sales. Yeah. You wanted to be cool to like the same to, you wanted to be cool to the set of 100 people in New York at the time. Yeah. You know, so like David Byrne, you know, like Bosco, like you had to be cool to that set. Yeah. And like, didn't matter how rich you were and, and how famous you were. Like if you weren't in that set, that it wasn't cool. And so again, per the earlier ideas about cool, maybe like there's some like learnings from cool, you know, yeah. to, to, to be had as well. And if we just chip of the way, chip away, yeah. And like turn on people one by one, then yeah. then that's maybe making a way for sure. Yeah, I think so. And it's like, you know, embracing that that sensitivity for myself to connect back to like what my heart's telling me mm. and just doing that, mm. you know, following that rather than, you know, it's so easy to fall into the trap of like, oh, this is going to get likes or this is going to get money. But I remember like printing the first issue of Inventory Magazine and I was like, I made this. No one can take that away from me. Yeah. And like in whatever many years I can show this to my kid and be like, yeah, I made this one time, mm-hmm. you know? And like, that was enough. Cold facts. That's, those are cold facts, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of getting back to that. I think. Yeah. It, it's interesting too. And yeah, not to keep <laughs> spiraling out like a double helix, but it's like, what, what do we make from this mindfulness journey? You know, like, it's definitely cool to to share ideas out. I posted your T-shirt on my Instagram and like my DMs went crazy. <laughs> I need that. Oh my God. You know, so um, thank you for that gift. And it's awesome. And, and more to come. We need more. But like, yeah, what do we, I guess that's what I'm thinking. Like, what do you make with running? Like, yeah. you know, you can't even hold on to the times. You can't even hold on to the moment, you know? And what do you make from the mindfulness journey um, that, that lasts after we leave this earthly plane. So it's interesting. Um, what are some lasting things we can do to, to pass on, you know, material things are, are super crucial, obviously. Yeah. I think, I think they play their role, but I think, yeah. you know, just the idea that you can go do a race and run it faster than you thought you could, you know, like that boundary expansion is such a, inspiring lesson no matter what the time was yeah because other people can learn from that and take it for 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 their for their for themselves right i think so just like you know putting in the work and surrendering to the outcome and whether you're running one mile or 3100 like being open to learning about yourself and you know that's just a huge step in the direction of Mm. becoming more compassionate and empathetic and and you know the more of that there is then the more we're gonna look after the planet, look after the animals, the plants, the other people that are living next door to us. Yeah. And yeah. So I think running can do that. I mean, sure. anything can do it with sure. intention. It's just, you know, the combination of being engaged awareness and having some intention. Yeah. Yeah. And really how we order our efforts around that, you know, mm-hmm. like the kind of experiences like you recreating, like uh, a mindful running experience with, with, with Mike Spino or like building a training camp in Mexico mm-hmm. with like mindful athletes involved. Like those are sort of catalytic force multipliers where, mm-hmm. you know, me, my dad imaging running to me kind of like gave me an early introduction to aesthetics and ethics. Mm-hmm. But for me being able to like share that now on social media can spread that to the few people who mm-hmm. are really dig it. Yeah. Know? Or for me passing it on to my son, maybe he 
grows up thinking like running and marathoning and meditation is like normalized. And so yeah. maybe he'll spread that. When we're able to get 10 people at a camp for three weeks and go in, then then that really multiplies beyond just like going to the camp ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. When you and I kind of combine our efforts here in LA or wherever, mm-hmm. 100 locations to your point, like what can we do by taking that circle of 10 people, especially in this pandemic era, what can we do to like, repeat, 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 and share out and proliferate mm-hmm. those ideas. So definitely opportunities for us now, for all of us now, like we've been saying, these are this is the moment of opportunity to uh, to really sh- share those ideas out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to expand that multiplicatively, not just arithmetically, not just like one plus two plus three, mm-hmm. but like two times three times four. So mm-hmm. like, yeah, the, the multiplicative kind of, pursuit more than just the basic arithmetic one yeah while we're doing it <laughs> <laughs> making the road by walking yeah for sure yeah exactly well, i think that's probably a good spot to leave it for today yeah. but hopefully this is the first of many conversations to come yeah well i mean i'll, I'll be more i'll be more brief in my responses next time we hang <laughs> out but this is you got me on a wave today so it's yeah. like uh, it's awesome i appreciate the energy and i appreciate the opportunity and you know for, for the folks that are meeting mm-hmm. orally and orally and, and digitally this time through this, mm-hmm. like definitely look forward to meeting people in real life when our world opens up again. So I'm yeah. definitely kind of like, I'm appreciative of uh, the invitation into your community and to like your, your circle of, of friends and associates. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing everything. Really appreciate it. And for sure. Yeah. It's been exciting to connect and, and dig in for sure. Yeah. We'll see what happens next. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it would be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.